Welcome to a conversation of change with Dr. Jen Fram, where we talk all things leadership, change, and transformation. And welcome everybody back to another conversation of change with Dr. Jen Fram. Um, today, I've got a really super interesting guest for you, and you know that I tend to be a little bit selfish in who I bring in on these uh, these shows, and it's inevitably um, they're people that I've heard from or I've read and that I find super interesting or there's something in it that's just really ringing for me and I think, well, you know, I really want to share it with the rest of you. So for that reason, I am absolutely delighted to welcome um, Cameron Schwab to our show. Cameron, welcome. Thank you. And uh, I like that introduction. So I'll be now interested to find out what bit you found interesting. So Yeah, I will. There's a few there. Let me just give a, a little bit of um, background. So about half of the listenership um, uh, outside of Australia, uh, out of, outside of Australia, and many of you in Australia will be aware that Cameron is uh, oh, let's just call him Aussie sporting royalty, uh, particularly in the field of AFL, Australian Football League. Um, younger CEO of Richmond Football Club, next 25 years in CEO roles of three of the AFL clubs. He is um, now well sought after for his work in leadership and CEO mentoring. Cam, to start off with, how do you explain AFL to people who know nothing about it? Um, I, I think in many ways I, I talk about it as quintessentially Australian, really, in lots of ways. It was... Um, it, it talks, it, it's uh, obviously comes from its heritage in terms of um, the traditional football codes, but actually is arguably the first ever uh, of the um, codified footballs. And, and interesting that the club that I was CEO of at one stage, Melbourne Football Club, is in fact the um, uh, the oldest professional football club in the world and and has the, the honour of actually uh, playing the game game that he created way back in 1858 and I was always very proud of the fact that my lineage in that role went back to the, the original the person who wrote the original rules of the sport Tom Wills and uh, but his background probably is what Australian football's background is that he uh, he got a scholarship to go to the rugby school in the UK but he grew up in a place called Moyston which is uh, northwest of uh, Victoria it would have been very much um, pioneering country in those days and grew up with indigenous kids and uh, so he played again we play a game which is uh, uh, whether it's folklore or whether it's reality, which is one part uh, from the uh, you know the the uh, the grammar the rugby grammar school uh, college in uh, heritage, and another part um, Indigenous Australian. So it's a you could never invent the game if you tried it again. It's a it's a tough <laughs> game to play. It's a it's an oval game, uh, two hundred metre grounds with uh, oval ball, thirty six players on the ground, no offside, uh, but it's a I think it. I think it uh, has all the best elements of all the great football coach, to be honest. And uh, I come from a place of absolute bias when I say that. <laughs> so, to, so to give you some background, Cam, I'm I'm a Queenslander, and I grew up with baseball and soccer in the household. Mm -hmm. um, yeah. And I think uh, so. AFL had always been described to me as aerial ping pong. Yes, that's right. Was, that's that was the expression until I moved down to Melbourne and. Um, for those listening outside of Melbourne, what you need to appreciate is to find a footing in Melbourne, um, you need to find your tribes really fast. And 
one of the defining questions you will be asked, no matter who you meet, is who do you follow? Which which team do you follow? So if you don't have a background in watching AFL, you've got to get one pretty quick. Um, otherwise, it's a pretty lonely place to be. So uh, the question actually is who do you barrack? And I think barrack might be a uniquely Australian term. Yeah, as well, good point. Which is, which is actually I think from the um, the uh, the army barracks, which used to be next to the MCG, and the the barracks. Yeah, you know, the guys you know would come over and they'd have chants and all those sorts of things going at the games, and they become known as the barracks. And uh, so there's actually a lot of heritage in it, and um, it's uh, captured certainly. The hearts and minds of um, most people in the southern states, and unique Australian thing, I suppose, is that we uh, we pay we play four footballs, and um, and uh, they all uh, they're all wonderful sports. And I was certainly blessed to have uh, you know thirty years of my career uh, in something that I grew up loving, and uh, was very much part of my personal heritage, and, yeah. and then got to got to play it out. Uh, it was never good enough to play it um, at that top level, but. But got to, to live it in uh, in another way is firstly as a recruiting person and the majority of the time as the CEO. Fantastic, fantastic. Um, now uh, we, we we talk change and transformation on this podcast. Um, football as an outsider to football, it strikes me that football has gone through enormous change. If if probably driven by societal changes. So if we look at the rise of Indigenous players in football, we now have a professional women's league. Um, the Pride Games, the celebration of Ida Hobbit, those kind of things. Yeah. I wouldn't pretend to know what goes on inside the club, but I'm yeah. curious what you make of uh, change leadership from your experiences in the industry. Well, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's driven by performance, so therefore it has to be up for change, you know, because performance is... Um, is uh, by definition, uh, when you're competing and you've got one team wins and one team loses each weekend, it's uh, if you're not up for change, you're not up for high performance, really. And uh, yeah, there's always, you know, I think uh, if, if I was looking at anything that, that sport does in this way, and this applies to business as well, uh, if you just did a little simple quadrant and you just had on one side, is it working? And on the other side, is it important? And uh, and in sport, it continually goes through that process. You know, is, is what we're doing important? And mainly as it relates in elite sport, as it relates to uh, the performance of the team. And then is it working? And because and you're actually competing against someone else, often your stuff isn't working. You're getting beaten. So you have to look at change. And if it's not working, you by, by definition, you have to ask yourself what needs to change. And... And unfortunately, uh, from time to time, the pure competitive nature of uh, of elite sport ha- can have a, a tendency to bring out, uh, obviously, remarkable performance, but it can actually bring out the worst in people as well. And, uh, and I've got to be, you know, I'm open and honest enough to say I've been on the both sides of that, you know, the best and worst of my own behaviours in, in, in regard to that. In terms of the other changes, I think often, you know, sport's at its best when it leads the conversation, you know, and I think it's in terms of um, what it's done in regard to over its over its time, it's the changing attitudes towards um, uh, Indigenous uh, people in particular, I think, has played a role in that, in that it basically judges inside the organisation based on what you can actually bring to the team and what you're prepared to give to the team. From time to time, it can lag in people's attitudes towards that, and we saw some, you know, some um, 
really disappointing outcomes with uh, with Adam Goods and the booing of Adam Goods mm-hmm. recently, which um, which really you know, had the potential to define the game in a way that it would would never have hoped to be defined, and it didn't at that time didn't know what to do about it. But in in, in uh, looking at what it needed to do, whatever it did wasn't enough, and and so therefore change came too slowly in, in regard to that. And the one the one thing about sport at that level is that you know that the balance it plays between what I'd call purpose and performance is really, you know, can be, it, it, it can be quite unsettling in lots of ways because it, it ultimately wants to see itself as performance oriented, but it, it recognises it does come from a deeper place and deeper purpose, in, including its own heritage. And I think in regard to that state, in, in that, whilst we can be proud of our history as an overall situation, we also prove that we can fail ourselves mm-hmm. as well by not changing and not adjusting quick enough. And I think, yeah. You know, becoming good at ambiguity and facing into our ambiguity is always going to be one of the great challenges for all of us. And, and unless we're prepared to embrace it, we, um, you know, we, we, we're not giving ourselves personally or organisationally the opportunity of achieving what we can. Mm. The the Adam Goods example is a really good one in terms of, you know, the the similarities of what happens in a lot of large corporate organisations in such that the Leadership knows there needs to be change, but sometimes the people in the organisation or the, you know, the the, the fans, etc., can be slow to change. And, yeah. um, and that's difficult stuff for leaders during change. One of your sayings is it's um, the hard days that define us. Can you tell us a little bit more about that and what that means for you in leading change? Yeah, it is those mornings where... Uh yeah, I, I can remember driving into work and knowing that I was going to have to face into a difficult decision. And and and, the, and I think the main, most difficult decisions are when you know that you're going to be making a call on someone's life. Really, that if you you have to bring someone into your office that day and um, and tell them that they're no longer a part of the thing that they've spent their life wanting to be a part of. And that can be, and I, and I, I faced into that relatively early because I was a recruiting manager and recruiting young footballers and having to tell 17 or 18-year-old footballers that, you know, that they weren't going to be good enough to play the very thing that they, they'd spent their young lives thinking that that's what they'd get to do. And, and, and pleasingly, you're, you're often proven wrong, yes, and players did go on and, and play. But but mainly when you were, but also when you were, you know, you might have to sack a coach or something like that, you know, who in many cases, um, you know, that they, they played the game, they then got involved in the game at a, a post-career. So they knew nothing other than the game, really, and you're putting that at risk. And I'd be sitting at a traffic lights and there'd be someone maybe cleaning the windows of the, you know, the 7-Eleven on the corner or something like that. And I'd look at his, that what that person's responsibilities were for the day and I'd say, I'd do anything to have your job today. You know, I'd do anything not to be me in my role. And at that point, questioning uh, not only the validity of the decision that I was going to take, but my ability to actually deliver, you know, that decision in a way which um, wasn't... Um, which could be done with any form of uh, decency and generosity, and and I can say that I, I failed that test, you know, a number of occasions, and and then I look back now, and I don't think of the days where I made the wrong decision, as in you know, time would say that I made the wrong call, as in you were faced with a 
a 50-50 and you chose the wrong 50 or even a 70-30 and you chose the 70 and the 30 got up. I, I, I don't reflect on those that much. I, I reflect on the days that um, I wasn't brave enough or I uh, I was, wasn't was humble enough. I, I let my ego you know, take control. I I reflect on, on on the days where I got angry, you know, when I when really that was just being indulgent and and so they're the defining things for me. So if I if I look back and and when you when you know you have a choice and there's some aspect of you which has dragged out the worst part of you, uh, they're they're the defining ones for me. And and they're the ones I had to practice the most, I'd say. And and whilst the whilst the the world would judge a CEO of an AFL club on wins and losses and and balance sheets and profit and losses and all the things that it does. Uh, I I found that over time that I was defining I was defining and and deciding my own performance based on on those three things. You know, am I being brave? Am I being humble? And am I being calm? And uh, and there's too many times uh, over my time, mainly when it got really competitive. You know, that my competitiveness. Um, sort of triggered um, behaviours of which uh, by no means I'm proud of now. Mm. That that makes me a little bit curious around are there moments of joy that define you? Are there moments of pride and, you know, really strong yeah. positive emotions that, that work for you? Yeah, no, there are. They're not, again, they're probably... Um, they're the conversations you'll have ten years later. They're the the ones that, uh, and you've heard me speak, and I talk about this notion of an unknown meaning for an unknown person. You know that uh, if if as a leader you have actually given of yourself to someone that it's actually had some meaning for them. You know that they've made choices in their life based on a conversation, and um, and I, I think of people who've had that um, had that um, impact on me that you made choices in life based on a conversation and then you see them later on in life when they're now, they might be parents, they might be, you have made, you know, significant, you know, uh, developments in their own career and they'll talk of a time where you had, um, you, you were generous with them and, and but you're also, you know, you, you listened well, you, um, you were decent, you honoured the conversation and they'll tell me how much it meant. They're, they're, they're the times again. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, there, there, there are certainly moments where I, like I was at Fremantle when we made our first final. I was at Melbourne when we made the finals for the first time in 23 years. I was at, um, you know, I was at uh, Richmond when we did a thing called Save Our Skins, which basically saved the club. But yeah, they're, they're, don't worry, they get a run on the resume. You know, they get a run on the LinkedIn profile. But I don't think about them nearly as much as the other stuff. And it, mm. and it might be that that I'm. Um, uh, getting old and generous or something I'm not sure but it's uh, you know or, or that you know that, that, that I'm actually seeking to define myself in a way that I never I never sought to define myself at the time but there's certainly pride in all of that you know yeah. there's, there's no doubt you know and um, and I still feel a, a deep love and connection with the clubs with whom I uh, I felt um, that I had the opportunity of working for, and in in, two, in one club's case, Melbourne, I got sacked twice there. So it actually, even 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 despite that, I, I still, you know, I can tell the story about um, being a part of a club which was the um, um, 
which were the uh, almost the owners of the game, if you like. You know, I, I loved that fact, and uh, but I, I do, I do, I certainly have my moments. And, and the good thing is, sports very good at um, at, uh, at at celebrating its own folklore, and mm. so I, I get to do that. I get to do that, you know. So if I, it's, it's a funny thing. I, even on the, I did a little bit of work with a club last week, and um, and we had dinner afterwards, and we call it GFS. It's a funny terminology, but it's called good footy shit, you know. So we yeah. just get to talk good footy shit, you know. Yeah. And I love that, you know. Where I was, we're actually looking for, and they weren't necessarily people I'd spent a lot of time with over the journey, but we had people in common, and we knew of each other's achievements, and and we t- we wanted to hear the backstory to those achievements, or we knew of it. We knew of each other's near misses and we wanted to then go, how close did it get? And yeah. All of those things are still a beautiful part of it. And I, I think it's probably that that I miss more than anything, you know, when yeah. I, you know, yeah. on, on, when, in terms of doing what I do now. It's just that, that sense of camaraderie and, and trying to build something with a group of people together, which you know is always going to be hard. It's, you're mm. never going to have a good – you're never going to have an easy day, you know. <laughs> it's it's what, what you just spoke of there and – you know, it's it's really interesting to notice the change in tempo as you're telling those stories to the previous and yeah, what's yeah. defining you in the reflection. But it, it has me thinking about one of the, the spaces that's really quite contested in the change space at the moment is the notion of change resilience. Yeah. Um, and there seems to be emerging this two camps of how do we look at resilience? Is it something we need to embody to allow us to brace for more change? Um, Or is it this state of perpetual learning and a much more positive buoyancy where you're thriving during change as opposed to coping with change? What's what? How do you make sense of that? Uh, I think you've just got to look at both the even from success, even in failure. There's a form of resilience in in both, and 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 I I think probably I made some of my worst decisions when. when I was being seen as successful, and I think it's mainly because the ego kicked in, if you like. And mm-hmm. and what I was doing was I was over, I was uh, uh, I wasn't accurately assessing, you know, really my role in all of that in in some ways. And so a really good a really good definition um, of resilience comes from a guy by the name of Tim Harkness, who's the uh, he's the he's the uh, he's a sports science and psychologist with Chelsea Football Club, who, who played with an enormous amount of pressure in. Um, in the UK, and, and he says it's your capacity to accurately assess both your threats and your opportunities, and then allocate emotional resources accordingly. And, and, I, and I like That's that. That's fantastic. Yeah. So you, so even if looking at, have you accurately assessed the threats and the opportunities? And sometimes we can over, if things aren't working, you know, we we and often they're not. Is that the first question we've got to ask ourselves is, is it important that we fix it? And then what do we have to do to change it? If it's not important that we fix it, we can spend a whole lot of time fi- fixing things that don't need to be broken. And our efforts and our time is actually much better spent, you know, developing something else, something new, something different. And, you know, and, and that can be really hard in, in, in businesses and organisations because often we've, we've actually aligned resources to the thing which doesn't need fixing. And so you've got to change something else to, to actually even allocate your efforts to something else you know so if you if you put in place a department or or a group of people who are working on something which you now turn around and say is not important well you've also upset a whole lot of other things but we we can hang on to things for too long and and even even um and i remember there's a guy named neil craig who's a he's a wonderful um sporting person he actually was um 
he was a uh, high performance manager with uh, England Rugby, who just got beaten in the World Cup final with Eddie Jones. And but he was a senior coach at Adelaide, and I worked with him at Melbourne. Whenever we faced into some difficult situations, he he would just he'd come in because sports great at, at looking back and saying what can we learn from what actually happened. It's it's where it's miles ahead of business. We spend a lot of time looking back and trying to work out what we can learn and how we can use that as a teaching tool from this point onwards, whether it's a game or whether it's a whether it's a um, something we didn't handle well in a in a uh, trade week or something like that. And the first question he used to always ask is, "Did we stay calm? Did we stay calm?" And we spend ten minutes on just that question, and if if we actually come to the conclusion that we we didn't stay calm, there was almost no point assessing the rest of the decision, you know, <laughs> because if we weren't calm, it was just a freak of nature if we got it right, really, you know. So. So that that's almost the first question you ask yourself. You know, when you when you're faced into something, you just ask yourself, did you stay calm? Yeah. And um, and if and if you did, and uh, you're um, now we can at least have that conversation about you know, did we have all the information? Did we have the knowledge? You know, did we? You know, was there anything more we could have actually done during the break? You know, whatever. But staying calm coming the first part of it. So what he's basically saying is, let, let's make sure that we're allocating the right emotional resource to this yeah. to this issue. Yeah, yeah. Um, and there'll be variation because you'll always have uh, people who have different levels and different experiences, and mm. um, and I and we admire in the AFL players who, under intense and fierce pressure, can um, can make great decisions. You know, in front of a hundred thousand people in the MCG, you know, but we're not saying we're not we're not allocating the same. Um, you know the same, if you like, uh, way of thinking when we're uh, when we're not doing it in front of a hundred thousand people or someone running, you know, at, at us at a hundred miles an hour. That's mm. um, that seems to me uh, the goal of most of this is just uh, allocating the right emotional resource to whatever the the challenge, the circumstance, the threat, the win, the loss, whatever it might have been through That's our Great way to look at it. Great way to look at it. Um, Cam, there was, um, so for the listeners' benefit, I was listening to Cam uh, speak at an event last week. Part of the the talk, you referenced um, you appreciate parenting as a metaphor for leadership. And I have to say at that point, um, my stomach did a turn and, you know, I had to mask the faces as I went, oh, my God, please no, um, because so much of our work is done trying to get rid of parent-child um, relationships in the workplace and get people working as peers and stuff like this. And so I had this really strong knee-jerk. Well, I hope I won your back a bit, did I? Well, I've, I've, done, I've since done a little bit of reading of, of, of the work that you've put out and I can see yeah. that you, you use that metaphor in a very different way. Yeah. Can you share your thoughts on that metaphor? Um, well, the metaphor, well, one, there's probably, there's a whole lot of reasons. I, I use, one of the metaphors I often have is um, just the, anyone who is a parent will um, will remember the time where the where the baby goes from the uh, to the womb from the womb to the hospital and all its buttons and support and and then all of a sudden to um, you know, you got the you got the kid in the back of your car, you know, and you're driving home at about three kilometres an hour, and you just basically everything in your life at that time changes. You know, all of a sudden you can't drive anymore, let alone you know, think you got to look after this child, and 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 you're looking at each other and you're thinking, well, this thing's forever, and and there's going to be lots of times in all of this that we're not going to know what to do, and and you know, uh, it's it's. It's a uh, and and I found that with leadership is that um, 
if in leadership you actually walked in the room pretending that you knew what to do when you didn't know what to do, um, you'd never dream of doing that as a parent. You know, you, you actually get support. You ask people, you know, you, you ring your older sister, you, you know, people who know what's going on, people who have more expertise than what you do. But it's still always going to be hard. And I think that's probably the other element to it, that leadership's actually always going to be hard. And, um, and the, the other aspect of it is, is, um, is ultimately our, our – I think the most important uh, question that anyone can ask as a, as a leader is a simple one, which is do you believe in your people and do your people believe in you? Do you believe in your people and your people believe in you? And then ask yourself, okay, well, what, what makes you believable? And then what do I need to do to believe in in um, the people who who are working in an organisation? And I don't mean it in, in an ownership sense. I just mean it in, in a relationship sense. And I think that's a lot like parenting, you know, that, that ultimately what we're trying to do is get our, tra- our children safely to self-responsibility as quickly as they possibly can. And what we – and then – we, we keep letting go more and more and more and from time to time we get the door slammed in our face because puberty kicks in and all of that is just a mechanism, if you like, for people wanting and needing to have their own space in, in regard to self-responsibility. And, you know, I've got, you know, a, 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 my, my parenting circumstance a little bit different in, I'm not different, it's the wrong term, but, you know, just been, you know, we're challenged by a... Um, a circumstance I never saw coming, which was I have a transgender child, and and she uh, and she's you know wonderfully proud of her, but but all of a sudden recognizing that I wasn't sure that I had what I needed to actually parent her in the way that she needed parenting, and because I'd pretty much made up my mind for the previous sixteen years that I that I thought I knew, and um, and I didn't know, and and it was always going to be a um, that living in a world of not knowing is is always going to test us, and and then we need our kids to help us with that because you know if they're not helping us with their not know with our not knowing by not sharing with us how they're really feeling and how they're really going, well we can't help them anymore. Mm-hmm. And and the term I used and the thing I said to to Evie at the time was that we, you have to make yourself easier to parent. You know I, I can't if you if you're pretending. And trying to set your life up in a way where where you feel as though you're so determined about the decision you've made, which we're fully supporting you on, that we're not you're not allowing us to help you through whatever inevitability that a young person's going to go through, let alone someone who's changed gender. Mm. Well, you know, I don't know who you got left. You know, it's really only us. And I, and I think leadership gets to that point as well that you have to have people who are prepared to be helped, and also you have to make yourself open to the the learning required to actually help them. And when you when you have that, the thing which builds is belief because you actually go, well, if anything goes wrong here, anything's not working here, we can at least have the right sorts of conversations to to see if we can make it happen. Mm. And and uh, and the other thing is you're biased. You know, with kids you're biased, you know, and you build your biases around them in the same way as, you know, we have our biases in the workplace as well. And we need to be able to see through those, you know, that you know, that, you know, sometimes we we're too hard on our kids, but other times we we're looking at rose-coloured glasses, our kids as well, and that, and they, and either, and and when you wake up in the morning, you still have to parent them the same way as you when you take them out of the car when they're when they're so dependent on you, you still have mm-hmm. to parent them. No one's going to do it for you. Yeah, that makes sense. 
Oh, look, it, it does. And I think um, it was the way you explained the, the move towards autonomy um, yeah. is part of, of parenting that um, definitely sits easier. It's a funny thing because it's actually, I often ask leaders, I go, do you want to be, do you want to be loved as a leader? Mm. And I reckon there's a little part of them that does, you know, but they're not going to own up on that, you know. And then, and then I go, oh, do you want to be liked? You know, and they and they and they know it's deeper than like. And normally people lean forward and they go, no, no, I want to be respected. I want to be respected. But but even then, I think it's deeper. I say, oh, I think you want to be trusted. You know, you want to be trusted. You know, in the end, there are people who are aligning their careers with whatever you dish out on a day to day basis. So can you can you at least actually do it on the basis that you're going to honour that? You know. Mm-hmm. Because it's, it's not about you. It's actually about the people. I get, I get the aspiration to be a leader, you know, but if, you, if you're not honouring the role, you, you're not making a difference. And, and I think ultimately the aspiration is to make a difference. Um, otherwise, don't call yourself a leader. Call yourself something else. <laughs> and uh, and uh, we need to have something which is in between not quite leader but not quite manager. You know, it's, a funny, it's a funny place that I think a lot of people find themselves in. Yeah. It um, for for its work. I I I would say that most of them do want to be loved. I think that's a universal. Yeah, so. We we all want to be loved. We, yeah, we want to be loved. Is. We're just not. We're not prepared to own up. Um, no. I think there is. There, there's a bit of love, but you also recognise that it's um, it's a uh, it's a big it's a big it's a big step, right? And I think no doubt that there's. There's um, the one thing which I think has changed over time is that. We, I, we fully encourage deep friendships now in the workplace where we didn't do that for a long time, you know, that because oh, that was going to form a clique or it was going to form yeah. some other bullshit, you know. Well, friendship is and, – and if a group of people like spending more time together than they do with another group of people, that's just the natural process of life, you know. And if – I don't know about you, but I actually prefer to, prefer to spend time with people who I get on well with and I like and I've got lots of common ground with and people who I don't like, you know, that's just natural. But that doesn't mean you're not going to spend people time with people you don't like. You have to forge as best you can the sorts of relationships which the organisation requires of you. But, yeah. you know, I think friendships in the workplace is a really powerful thing and really good, strong, solid friendships, as we know, are built on the basis that people can, um, you know, they can set expectations and standards of each other regardless. Well, and ask for support. Feel supported. Yeah, yeah, they're more likely support. to reach out. Yeah, yeah. No, doubt, yeah, yeah. no doubt. Um, Cam, more to the game. Tell me about yeah. it. What does it mean for you? And, and more I guess, to the game for what me. does it mean for change? Um, well, more to the game came to me um, as a um, because I, I did a lot of my learning through the game because my father was involved in the game as well, and um, and I think in the end, as a as a father, he. Without me knowing it at the time, he he used the game and my love of it as a and his understanding of it. So he came from a position of expertise in the game as as a means by which he could um, educate me on things beyond the game. You know whether it was the stuff we talked about before about handling you know handling your successes with humility, about um, bouncing back, about building resilience, all the things that the game was was going to test anyone in but also what life was going to do for a young person as well and and i love the idea of how we turn knowledge into wisdom how we how we turn knowledge into wisdom you know so if i have a conversation we're having a conversation now if someone if someone's listening says oh i I like that quote from tim hartness you know the chelsea bloke well how, how do they make that now part of their wisdom rather than just a piece of knowledge and information that they have 
well, that's my more to the game, if you like. That's the going deeper into it. There's there's things that you can see when you watch a game of football and you say, yeah, I, I think I understand. But then you go, okay, if I want to really understand what's going on there, you've got to go deeper. Um, if you want to go, you know, and most people don't need to, they just they just love the game for what it is. But in, in our own world, if we say, okay, there's – and the line is there's more to the game than you are seeing, is in, is it you've got to go beyond the obvious stuff, beyond the cliche. What is the wisdom which is driving this? And and my, my take is that if you if you actually it's not what you're prepared to learn today, it's what you're prepared to teach tomorrow. So if you if you take a piece of knowledge and it becomes a learning thing for you, and then you can pass on that knowledge in the form of wisdom to someone else, it's it's been aligned with your own take. You, you you deeply believe in it and it's resonated with you in some other way. And then now you've passed that on to someone else and that becomes your unknown meaning, unknown person. That goes wherever it's going to go. But you've shown that there's more to the game. You've given it more than what it actually is. So it came out of a thing that I, it was a, a um, it was a reflection on my, my relationship with my father, which I've now taken, who passed away a long time ago, but who, who I've now taken into the, the work I do now. So, and it also happened when I was, because I was, a, I'm a practicing artist as well. So, so with art is, I studied fine art at the Victorian College of the Arts only a few years ago. And, and I was more like a tribal elder in some ways because I was with all these first year uni students, you know. And so I got on, I got to know the lecturers more than anyone else. And one of the lecturers, his, lecturers, his name's uh, Raf Ishak, a wonderful artist. And, he came up to me at one stage and he said, oh, you, you draw like a CEO or your art's like a CEO's art. You know, it was like an ultimate put down, you know. And and he, um, and he what he was basically saying is you, you, art's about creating a conversation. You, you, you're all about closing down the conversation. You, you don't want any interpretation of your stuff. You're too scared, you know. Yeah. That's what he was telling me. That was, that was my interpretation of what he was telling me. So once I picked my ego up off the floor and, and sort of <laughs> try to take it into a piece of learning for myself, I worked that out. And, and I was really then conscious about how we need to create space in, in, whether, uh, in how we speak, how we teach, how I do art, how I write, how I do whatever, for people's own interpretation of it. And that's actually the key part. It's, no one's going to just take what you write as, doc, as doctrine and then or what you draw as doctrine and say and pass it on to the world, it has to resonate with something that they believe in themselves. Mm. And and if it does that, the knowledge has become wisdom. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. No, I love that. And the, the story about your art teacher had me had me laughing because the last 12 months I've taken up, um, you know, art and immersion into art and play. Mm-hmm. And one of the things the art teacher had said to me in life drawing classes, because yeah. to, to tell you the truth, my process is they move into a pose that I look at and I go, no, not a chance, can't draw it, like forget yeah. it. And then I draw whatever I see in front of me with no no expectation of it actually looking anything like that model. Yeah. And she came over and she said, you're very good at seeing the things that other people can't see. And yeah. I went, yeah, that's what I do at work. That's that's yeah. what I do in change. I find the things yeah. that other people can't see. And so it's been a really interesting experience of how that, you... That is. It is. And, 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 and life drawing is always hard. Life drawing is never easy. And it uh, wouldn't matter if we could, if we grabbed uh, Pablo Picasso out of retirement and got <laughs> him to have a go at it. He, he'd still make a mess of it at different times. It's always, it is always that. And it was interesting because when I, when I first started the, the College of the Arts is that, um, is that, because I, I got in, I was a drawer, so that's my reason. So if 
um, in the, the first uh, few weeks you're there, you do a lot of life drawing. Yep. And for those who don't know life drawing, you've got basically butcher paper, 10 minutes, nude model in front of you, and you're trying to capture whatever you see. And we do all of that. And uh, I couldn't help with my little competitive instincts taking over, just doing a little wander around everyone else's, you know, butcher paper as well, just to see where I stacked up against everyone else, you know. So the old footballer, football person came out of me even when I'm doing art class. But then three years later, I can say, and there's some prodigious talents, you know, getting into fine arts at the Victorian College of Arts, don't worry about that. And so, but then I looked at it three years later and said, okay, who has now created the art that we're talking about? And it almost had no resistance, uh, no uh, uh, relevance or to, to what I saw when I first walked around the back of everyone's uh, butcher paper that day. It yeah. was it was the it was the the young people who were prepared to go deep into the, the ones who were the most curious, the ones who had a really good system of making art. You know, people underestimate there is a real system of creativity. You know, do they curate their own thinking before they seek to create something? All that sort of stuff. Are they? And they're also the kids who slept in their studios who just were obsessed with it. You know, they loved it. And so I was seeing in what I saw from the um, the young artist was exactly the same personal characteristics as I saw in the elite young footballers. They, they just yeah. were different. You know, I was just looking at uh, skinny little goth kids instead of you know, six foot five you know, Adonises. That was the only <laughs> that was the only difference. But the actual mindset was unbelievably similar. That's brilliant, brilliant. Um, Cam, one of the the truisms that I've come to, you know, believe, accept, mm-hmm. um, recognize in the leaders that I do work with on change and transformation is that in order to be effective at change and transformation, you need to be able to change yourself. Um, yeah. Inevitably, that's the first place change needs to occur. Yes. How does that statement sit with you and, and your experience in leadership? No, no, I'm, I'm very, you know, one, I'm very supportive of it. Um, one of the lines I use is you, you, you're not your beliefs. You know, you, you people people become very um, – they, they love this thing that they are their beliefs, you know, and my beliefs have, you know, have stood me in good stead. You know, well, well I, I would say it's often belief and dogma is so related. And the classic example of that is that um, for for – 130 years, 140 years, 150 years, there, there was no interest in women playing football at the elite level, you know, and there was no lack of women playing the game, but all we, we thought there was no appetite for it at the senior level. Well, that belief was only held by, you know, white middle-aged men. There, wasn't, there was never a belief by the women themselves. You know, so, and they, they actually do make up more than 50% of the population, and, and Australian football has a remarkable number of women um, actively supporting the game, given that we've actually never provided the opportunity them to have a career as athletes within the game. So, you know, it's about, I think it's, you know, it's close to 40% of the, the, between 30 and 40% of the members of AFL clubs are women, which is miles ahead of just of any other football in the world. And it's because it's always had a family orientation. There's reasons for that. Yeah. Um, none of which we can take any credit for, but we actually like to take credit for. So, so there is a whole belief system which was around um, that no one's uh, interested in in watching women. Well, 56,000 people turn up at Adelaide Oval to watch um, Adelaide beat Carlton in last year's uh, BWFL, uh, AFLW grand final. So we were wrong. And and so that was just held back by beliefs. And, and if we're going to have a serious conversation with women about the game, can we actually create serious career opportunities for them within the game? And, and now that's starting to happen. Still a lot of work to do. 
And so therefore that required a whole lot of people to change their mind. Mm. And there's still people who sneer and laugh and do all that sort of bullshit stuff. But there's still the people who sadly, and there was an example overnight in Italy where where a player walked off the ground, a African heritage player walked off the ground because he was racially abused from the crowd in the game. He just picked up the ball and kicked it into the crowd and walked off the ground. And it's stuff like that which needs to happen for people to actually change. Because people sitting there watching that game go, what do I have to do to make it a safe place for that young man to run around on our fields? Because that is just bullying in the workplace. Well, okay, we've got that. And they're extreme examples of the need to change. Um, but if you don't come in recognizing that we live in a very ambiguous world, um, ambiguity is only going to become more and more a part of our existence. And you're thinking you don't have to change. Yeah, you know, I, I do this stuff, and I call it the enemies of trust. And uh, the number one enemy of trust is uh, I have is uh, ignorance, and that's actually self-imposed ignorance. <laughs> and also, people who just unfortunately don't have the capacity to get it. That's actually part of it. Um, and also, the second one is default thinking. Default thinking. You know, when we actually keep coming up with the same answers for, for different problems, because those answers may have served us well at some stage in the past. And one of the one of the assets of trust I actually have is ambiguity. If we're good at ambiguity, well, we're a pretty cool organisation, I reckon. And for leaders to walk in the room instead of coming in on their white horse saying, "I've got the answer, you guys," um, it's actually walking. In, it's actually coming in the room slowly, sitting down, and say, "Look, I've got a view on this thing, but you know, I'm, I know that it'd be a, a far more informed view if I can get the very best thinking out of whoever's in the room." And ultimately, yes, I have. I will have to make a choice at some time. But I want to make it a totally informed choice based on the um, the thinking and mastery of which happens to sit in this room at this time. Sensational, Cam. Have you got time for a quick uh, word association? Oh yeah, okay. I'm, 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 this will bring out all my biases. <laughs> well, I reckon you're going to nail it. Quite frankly, I reckon you're going to nail it. So there's five qualities that I believe are critical for leaders facing into uncertainty. Yep. And first one, so I'm going to give you all five. And yep. if you give me a response to them, Thank vulnerability. Uh, yeah, only mean, it's the only way you can be authentic if you're prepared to be vulnerable. So can I talk about vulnerability a bit? Is that okay? Or yeah, it's your time frame. Go for it. Yeah. yeah no, I just think okay. There's three reasons you've got to be vulnerable. The first one is um, it's a it's actually a far more authentic version of who you are. You know, so you if you actually are pretending you're not vulnerable, well, we're not seeing who you are. And everyone says, I want to be an authentic leader. Okay, well, guess what? That comes with vulnerability. You know, authentic's a nice positive word. Everyone everyone shudders at vulnerability, but you know, but you can't be authentic without being vulnerable. The second one is that shit happens in our lives. Stuff gets out of control. You know, we uh, terrible things happen. And you know, or you know, circumstances within our families, our lives, all those sorts of things. So, it's actually a reflection on life. And the third aspect of vulnerability, which is pretty important, is it's actually by showing vulnerability, you're in fact inviting people to help you. You know, you're sending an invitation and saying, "Well, you know, I, I don't think a leader walks in the room and go, look, I don't know what I'm doing here.'" But they actually can walk in the room and say, "Look, I'm, I'm actually feeling." A little bit unsure of myself on this one. I, I'm not. Uh, I really need some help on this, or I've got this thing going on at home that I'm really battling with at the moment, or I've just got this little health issue that uh, you know, I might just need some support over the next little. So it, it's a, it's actually creating an invitation for people to step step in and uh, and support and help you and build the type of trust that you want to as a leader. 
So that's is that that's not one word we're associating. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay. It's okay. You're warming up. Empathy. <laughs> uh, empathy. Um, yeah. So I, I think it's more than listening. Okay. I think listening is a critical part of it. Uh, I like to call it skilled interrupting. Does that make sense? Yes, it does. So you, you want to be able to give the person. You just don't want to – look, I understand people want to get stuff off their chest and they want to talk and all that, but from time to time, listening and taking it in and seeing and helping that person with their own understanding uh, is, is by, by deeper, um, deeper feeling for what they're, what they're going through, I think is what empathy is. It's not just listening. It's not, and I think we make the mistake that people think empathy is just listening. It goes, it's layers below it. It's layers below that. Curiosity. Uh, makes the world go around. The curious will take over the world, hopefully. <laughs> hopefully. And the bloody dogma and the, and the nastiness will step aside. Courage. Um, doing the right thing even when it's hard. Self-compassion. Um, shit ass at it. Um, <laughs> The uh, um, self-compassion. Um, no, I'm not an expert. You need to talk to an expert on that. <laughs> no, no. I think um, I, I think it's at the heart of belief. You know that that um, you know. Do you believe in even those questions? Do you believe in others, and do they believe in you? Um, will you ask yourself? Um, what makes me believable? Well, really, at the heart of your own believability is: do you, do you have belief? And I think that's probably you can't have belief unless you actually, um, if you actually um, don't have that capacity to um, to to care for yourself in in a way which is um, just not simply the transactional stuff of going for a run or going for you know you, you actually got to. Um, it's, there's got to be some self-love in it all, yeah. So I've got a volatile relationship with my self-love. So. <laughs> <laughs> Volatility in it. Yeah. I don't think you're alone there, Cam. No, no. I think I'm. I think I'm in a. Yeah, she's a big queue at the front. So, <laughs> but we we can um, we can help people. We can help people, and um, and and I think I've learned it over time. I think I'm I'm getting better at it. I'm getting better at it. Yeah. That's great. Cam, this has been a joy to speak with you and you. hear your stories. Is there anything um, that you would like the listeners to know, go to, find you, connect, yeah. download? What's going on in your world that our listeners can help with? Well, my business is called Design CEO. So it's design lead designing leadership really as much as anything, which is because uh, I think it's a really probably from the conversations that we've had, you can sense that there's a there's a system of thinking around this stuff as much as there is a, a way of thinking, and uh, and so I, I help leaders actually find their own their own means by which they lead, and um, and it, and it's you know I come from an environment where I use the framings of perhaps the best learning environments, which are elite sport. I think they're the best learning environments in the world because they've got a scoreboard at the end of it all, and and we're measured by it, and uh, and we also have to recruit we recruit selfish young people and we have to educate them on selflessness you know so it's actually if we can make that transition um with those people you know why can't we do that as leaders and so my, my business is called design ceo I, I post a lot of stuff on linkedin which you've probably seen i'm, I'm, I'm 
I like to think I'm generous with um, with what I offer, and and uh, and I do it through coaching, through workshops, um, uh, through coming into organisations and helping their teams. Similar, probably to what you do in that regard, in you know find their own um, their own way of which they can lead in the context of the challenge that they're all facing in their own way. And uh, it's a system of leadership, basically the same way as um, football's a system of playing. And I'm quite, um, you know, at this stage getting really good feedback from from people who've had the experience. And I'd like to speak. You heard me speak the other day, had a chat, yeah, yeah. go pretty deep. And um, and by that, and then I can um, hopefully, I'm a big believer you have to lift people to shift people. I think that's probably, I don't, it's really hard to shift unless people feel uh, still motivated and um, energised by the prospect of doing it. And, and that's the approach I take to the work I do. Yeah. Trust me, we were all very lifted after watching you speak last week. Okay, cool. Pam Schwab, thank you so much for your time. It has been an absolute joy and a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity. You've been listening to A Conversation of Change with Dr Jen Fram. You can find many more resources on leading change at my website, drjenfram.com. I welcome feedback on what else you'd like to hear on the podcast. Why not connect with me on Twitter at Jen Fram or LinkedIn? 